Romans chapter 9, where we left off. And uh, we did not leave off at a chapter break. And I'm always greatly comforted to note that chapter breaks were not in the original, that they were inserted later on, much later on. And uh, originally it was just one document, one scroll, with the writings of the epistle or the prophet. And so uh, we have tried, not always successfully, to just leave off at the end of the evening at a, at a period, at a place in the scripture where there is a noticeable break. And uh, I don't know that we succeeded last time, so we're going to go back a little bit. To a large degree, you are what you are because of heritage. You are your parent's child, whether you like that or not. Maybe you grew up not liking the fact that you were the son or daughter of the parents that you were born with. Sometimes we chide against that. Sometimes it's a great benefit. Heritage. My father was fairly well known in the community that I grew up in, and many times I tried to use that as a calling card. Do you know who my dad is? And sometimes that worked in my favor, many times it did not. Now there was an incident in my wife's growing up where it worked in her favor. Her stepfather, where she grew up in Ludington, Michigan, was the local judge. And it worked in her benefit when the police would stop her on the road because she committed some legal infraction to, at the right moment, drop his name. And everybody knew this guy, and so it was like, well, okay, well, listen, just have a good evening. We'll let you go this time. And of course, this time meant this time and next time and probably every other time that you mention his name. So it could work to your benefit to have the right kind of heritage. But when it comes to your physical heritage, that buys absolutely no clout in the kingdom of God. Many thought it did. Many of the Jewish people thought, I'm Jewish, I'm a son of Abraham, I'm a daughter of Abraham. I'm part of the chosen race, the chosen people. I have sort of an in with God because of my heritage physically. That wasn't true. You remember what John the Baptist said as people were coming out to the Jordan River to be baptized by him. And he was telling them to repent of their sins and turn to God and bring fruit that spoke of that repentance. And he was second-guessing what they were thinking. And so he spoke out and he said, Hey, don't begin to think within yourselves. We have Abraham as our father. Because God can take these stones out here in the desert and turn them into children of Abraham. And they probably thought, Oops, how did he know we were thinking that? But it's easy to think that way when you've been brought up believing I'm part of the chosen race. In fact, there's a little phrase in the Jewish Mishnah, the holy commentaries of Judaism, that says, all Israel has a place in the world to come. Well, if you grow up thinking all of Israel has a place in the world to come, and I'm born in Israel, I have a place in the world to come, just like people today, many who are not born again but have a religious background, who think, well, I was born Catholic. Or I was born Baptist. And we know already, I think by now, that it doesn't matter how you were born. It matters that you're born again. 
You have to be born again, said Jesus, to enter the kingdom of God. So, by way of context, going back chapter 9 to verse 6, speaking of the Jewish people, but it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. He's going to take this thought, remember it, he's going to take it and thread it through the rest of this chapter. He's going to talk about though we have a nation, within that nation is a remnant. Not all believe, not all are God's people just because they're born Jewish. God has in Israel a remnant who are his people. Just because you are a son or daughter of Abraham does not make you a child of God and we remember last week that he spoke about Isaac versus Ishmael. Ishmael was the son of Abraham, but he was not the son of the promise. He was the son of the flesh. He was Abraham and Sarah's attempt at fulfilling the promise of God. In fact, when God said, you're going to have a son after Ishmael was already born, Abraham said, oh, come on, let's just let Ishmael live before you. Use him. Fulfill your promise through the kid we already have. God said, no. He's the son of the flesh. I have another son of promise, which was Isaac. And God recognized Isaac, not Ishmael. Even though Ishmael was the natural born son, in fact, the firstborn son of Abraham, he said to Abraham later on, take now your son, your only son, Isaac. There were, in fact, two sons. What was God referring to when he said, your only son? It was the only son God would recognize, and that was the son of promise, one that came through the spirit, not through the flesh. We have been looking at the free will of man versus the sovereign will of God then. And if you look in verse 14, we're just sort of weaving some elements together before we jump into where we left off. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very reason I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and declare my name that my name is declared in all the earth. Therefore, he hath shown mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Pharaoh is mentioned, And we mentioned Pharaoh last week and talked about the hardness of his heart. And just to recap on that, it wasn't until after several plagues had already come and gone that we read that, Pharaoh, uh, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Up to that point, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And after a certain period of time, God said, okay, you've made your choice. Obviously, you will not bend. You have hardened your heart. I will then make that hard heart even firmer. 
I will come along and harden you in the decision that you have made. It was clearly Pharaoh's choice, but then it was also clearly God's position to honor that choice. Now, we left off with that verse, and now verse 21. Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? God has formed man out of dust. I've always loved the illustration of the potter and the clay because it reminds me of my roots. My roots, your roots, it's dirt, dust. The Bible says God knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. We forget that. God remembers it. Now, whenever dust gets stuck on itself, it's mud. And a lot of people try to make too much out of who they are. You're dust, and God has formed you out of the dust of the earth. God didn't begin with a monkey. Man made a monkey out of himself. When God began, he took the dust of the earth and he formed us. And the point of Paul is, if God is the potter, that's the sovereignty of God, and we are dirt, and then God puts water with that dirt, and he fashions it, and he forms it, and he makes something beautiful. God can make anything he wants. Just like a potter can make a spittoon, or he can make a beautiful vase. It's worth thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars. The potter can have a will, and if the potter can have a will, so can the ultimate potter, God, have a will in, in what he does with his creation. But a lot is dependent upon the attitude of the clay. That is us. You may remember back in Jeremiah chapter 18, God said, Jeremiah, arise and go to the house of the potter, and it's there that I will cause you to hear my word. So I arose and I went to the house of the potter, and behold, the workman was working something on the wheels. But, he said, the clay was marred in the hands of the potter. And so the potter, in his wisdom, refashioned the marred clay and he made something different. The master potter is God. In that analogy, the clay is Israel. Israel became marred in the hands of the potter, and yet God said, even though you're marred, I'm going to shape you. I'm going to make you into something beautiful. And though Israel has sinned against me, I'm going to make them an important vessel. I'm going to restore them back to their land. Even though they're marred, I'm a God of restoration. And so God is the master potter. And this verse, as these other verses, speak of God's sovereignty. God can make whatever he wants. Now, we've been discussing sovereignty, and if you admit it, we've been a little uncomfortable with it. For some of us, the sovereignty of God is scary. Sometimes people say, well, I don't know if I want to come to Jesus Christ. What's he going to do with my life? What, like he's going to do some mistake? He's going to do some lame brain thing that you and I would actually do when we get a hold of our own lives? We're the ones that make mistakes. We have such a warped view of God, like, 
I don't know if I can trust you, God. You might, like, fashion me into a doormat or something. I don't want to be a spittoon. The sovereignty of God would be scary to me. I would be absolutely frightened of it if I didn't know the heart of God. Knowing the heart of God, knowing the nature of God, in essence, He is love, and that all things work together for the good of those who love God and are the call according to His purpose, makes the doctrine of the sovereignty of God exciting. Even when I marred, God's committed to take me to the absolute highest possible level that I will allow him to take me. I don't know if you've ever been to the house of a potter, if you've ever watched someone over a period of time fashion clay. What's interesting to me is that I've done this. I was um, over in Rhodes, actually, and I was watching somebody fashion something on the wheel. And I was watching them, and uh, through most of the process, I had no idea what they were doing. I didn't know what they were going to make. But the potter in the potter's mind knew exactly what he was going to make. He saw it as a completed project. He could see it in his mind and he was shaping with his hands what was already pre-designed in his mind. When he was done, it was beautiful. God has a design in mind for you. Will you ever discover that design by yielding yourself to his touch? Will you be rigid? Will you be marred? Will you settle for second best or third best? Or will you just yield and say, Lord, make whatever you want because your will has got to be the best. It's got to be perfect for my life. Whatever it is, I yield. So the sovereignty of God, though it could be a scary doctrine, is a wonderful when, when you know the heart of God, which is love. Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor another for dishonor. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Paul is not speaking of the creation of man by God. For when God created man, he created us in a sense, perfect, not fallen, in his image, God created us, made us holy, made us righteous, but made us with free will. And man chose to disobey God. Man fell from God's original design so that, if you look at the world today, though there is still the, the, the tainted image of God in each person, this is far from what God originally designed. You can still see the image of God, the beauty of God in his creation, but not like in the original, before the fall. So now we have man fallen from God. We have clay, but it's sinful clay. And the idea here is that God picks out of that mass, fallen mass, fallen by sin, certain ones to show mercy to. Which ones? See, now we get into the whole problem. Wait a minute, is that fair? Which one? Now, you and I don't know. God does know. God does have foreknowledge. We keep going back to that. And I contend that it, a, a lot of this has to do with God knowing everything in advance, knowing what our disposition, what the condition of our heart will be, knowing what our choice will be. 
And though he holds us responsible for choosing him or not choosing him, for relying upon his mercy or spurning his mercy, there is still above all of that, overshadowing that, the sovereign election and choice of God in advance, choosing out of that sinful, fallen humanity those to whom he will show mercy. Now, I want you to notice something in the text that I think will open some of this up for you. Uh, notice the difference between the vessels that of wrath that are prepared for destruction in verse 22 and the vessels of mercy in verse 23 that God has prepared beforehand. Notice it says in verse 22, He has endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Please notice it doesn't say God in advance is the one who prepared them for destruction. It just says they are vessels prepared for destruction, and you should know that in the Greek language it's in the middle voice, which means these are vessels that have prepared themselves for destruction. Now contrast that with the next verse where it says, which God, or which he, has prepared beforehand for glory. If man ever goes to hell, it's because he has prepared himself, he has fit himself, he has made himself that choice. Whereas if anyone ever makes it to heaven, it's because God has fitted that person himself with his righteousness. The person has relinquished himself to the mercy and the grace of God, and God, not the man, by any works of his own, but God has fitted him for glory. It's an important distinction. Verse 24. Even us, whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And he says also in Hosea, I will call on them my people who are not my people. I will call them my people who are not my people, and her beloved who is not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. Now, now Paul was a rabbi by background. and Paul had a tremendous grasp on the word of God. It's amazing to me how he can just cite scriptures and portions and fit them together and the phrases. He pulls a couple of verses out of the book of Hosea and a verse of scripture out of the prophet Isaiah fits them all together. And Hosea is a beautiful prophecy of restoration. The nation of Israel, though to go into captivity, would be restored by God. They would forfeit their position and Israel who was not called the people of God because they uh, capitulated to the Babylonians and other pagan worshipers, God restored them back and made them his people. Now God said, my people are as the sand on the seashore. Isaiah takes that and says, though they're as many as the sand on the seashore, Isaiah chapter 10, only a remnant, only a small number will survive. 
Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant shall be saved, for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. Now, I believe that this has a few different applications. I think it applies to the captivity and their return, etc. But I think it has the ultimate application. This is where it should interest us in the future, in the future tribulation period. That in the, in the scope of the plan of God, God has a future plan for the nation of Israel. And although God is reaching out to his people, not just Gentiles, but the Jewish people speaking about here, only a remnant will be saved. Now, if you read the book of Revelation, how many in chapter 7 of the children of Israel are sealed by God? 144,000. If you compare that number to how many Jews are alive on earth today, which is 15 million, that's just a remnant. And, and remember, there were the four angels that John saw in his vision who were about to unleash the winds of God's judgment upon the earth. And another strong angel said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. You know, I'm paraphrasing here. Um, Hold up. But seal the servants of God. Seal them in their foreheads before this judgment comes upon the earth. And 144,000 Jewish people, not Jehovah Witnesses, (laughs) not members of the Worldwide Church of God, as Armstrong once taught, Not any group except Israelites, Jewish people, and just so no one would make the mistake that it's anybody else, the tribes are even named. 12,000 from this tribe, this tribe, etc. Those are the ones who were sealed. A fraction out of the 15 million that are upon the earth today. A thing we should keep in mind in these chapters, well, let me rephrase that. A thing we ought to keep in mind through every chapter of prophetic biblical literature The key to understanding it is the nation of Israel. If you maintain an amillennial position, ah, well, you know, Israel failed God, and now all of the promises that God gave to the Jewish people are now for us, not for them, then every single thing is going to be messed up because the Jewish people becomes the the center through which he deals with the whole world. You know, almost every prophetic scholar will agree that the backbone of prophecy is the book of Daniel. Specifically Daniel chapter 9, specifically Daniel chapter 9 verse 24, 25, 26, 27. Where it says 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city, Jerusalem. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to anoint the most holy, etc. Seventy weeks. Now, we've covered that in depth. If you're unfamiliar with it, I can't help you tonight. It would just exhaust the rest of our study. But basically, 70 periods of seven are determined for the nation of Israel. See, that's the key. The nation of Israel and for your holy city. Sixty-nine of those periods of seven have already been fulfilled. The 70th has not. In fact, in that prophecy, there was one period of seven, one week of years left, one seven-year period left, that special things were going to happen. Sixty-nine periods, 69 uh, periods of seven years, 
483 years have already been completed as far as God's prophetic calendar with the Jewish nation is concerned. But the last one is not, because he said 70 weeks are determined. The reason I know it's not is because I have not seen everlasting righteousness. I have not seen the Holy One exalted and anointed as the King Messiah of all the earth. If that happened, I missed it, and so is everybody else. Okay, the 70 weeks of year prophecy out of Daniel 9, when that is completed, all of that will be fulfilled. It has not yet been fulfilled. It will be fulfilled by the end of that last period of seven years called a seven-year tribulation that comes upon all the earth through which God judges the earth, deals with the nation of Israel, and the remnant, 144,000, is sealed. All of God's prophetic plan. So that means that there has been a parenthesis of about 2,000 years. Because it says by the end of that 69th week, the Messiah shall be cut off. He was. He was killed. And then he rose again from the dead. He's ascended into heaven. And there's been a 2,000-year parenthesis. What happened during that 2,000 years? Us. Gentiles have happened. A lot of Gentiles. Most all of us tonight in this room are Gentile. Very few, if any, can say, I am an Israelite. I'm a child of Judah. But God has reached out his hand to the whole world because Israel, through unbelief, has been set aside temporarily so that the full number of Gentile can be come in. We'll read that in chapter 10. When that happens, whatever number that is, God will then start the time clock again, the last seven-year period, the tribulation, the work with the remnant of the Jewish nation. Verse 29. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth, or the Lord of hosts, as is translated in the original text in Isaiah, had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have become or been made like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they didn't seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. What's Paul doing? He's dealing with the problem we mentioned last week. Here's the problem. If, if the Messiah, if Jesus is the Messiah, he's the Messiah for the Jewish nation, all of the Jewish prophecies concerning the Messiah are fulfilled in Jesus Christ, then, if that's the case, Paul, why is it that only a very few number of Jewish people believe in him? And you've got more Gentiles in the church than Jews. If he's the Jewish Messiah, they're blind to it. They don't even believe him. And Paul is saying, well, first of all, there's always been a remnant. There will always be a remnant. Not everybody involved just because they're children of Abraham, will be saved. God works on the basis of a small remnant. It was that way, it is that way. And also, it was predicted that the Jewish nation would reject their Messiah. And he quotes the scripture here, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, that's Christ, a rock of offense. How do I know it's Christ? Because it's personified. Notice, and whoever believes on him, the rock is called him, his personality is given. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. 
So, he's saying there's two classes of people. You got Gentiles over here who didn't follow after, through any law or moral code, righteousness that comes from God, but they have it in the church because they believe in God. They believe in God's promises. It's done by faith. But on the other hand, you've got Jewish people who all their lives have sought to get right with God by being upright and moral and keeping the law. And Paul said they missed it. They misinterpreted the whole meaning of the Old Testament Torah, which is not a life of works but a life of faith. They've tried to get it by works, not by faith, and they missed it. Now, he can say that because he's a Jewish rabbi who himself tried to be righteous on the basis of the law and gave his pedigree in Philippians chapter 3. You may want to read that sometime on your own, not now. And look at his boast. Well, let's just go over it. He said, if they can boast, I can boast more. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was born and circumcised the eighth day. I'm a Benjamite, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning righteousness which comes from the law, blameless, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. He talked all about his background and how that didn't work and how he was willing to lay it aside and he called it dung, refuse, that I might be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but the righteousness which comes by the faith of Jesus Christ. That's parts of Philippians chapter 3. What are the lessons then of chapter 9 before we jump into chapter 10? And We're not going to finish chapter 10. I think you've guessed that by now. But again, remember, chapter breaks aren't important. Lesson number one, it's possible to be numbered among the people of God and not be one. You can say, well, I go to church every Sunday. I sit with good people. I sit with God's kids. You can sit with God's kids and not be one. A second lesson, spiritual life doesn't come through physical birth. Well, you know, my parents were good Christians, and their parents were good Christians. Now, that won't hold any water any more than Ishmael or Esau could say, well, I'm an Israelite because I'm a son of Abraham. Oh, no, you're not. So it doesn't come through the physical line, but it's that spiritual line which comes by faith. Now, let me just say something uh, to sort of cap off this whole free will of man, sovereignty of God issue. I don't think you're ever going to understand it. I think the more we get into it, the more we go, I don't get it. How can God sovereignly choose and elect before I'm born and yet give me free choice and then honor my choice? How does that work? You know, I can sort of understand certain things about it, but again, because God is unlimited in nature, and I am limited in nature, because God has foreknowledge with that nature, and there's no way that I can think I don't have foreknowledge. I can't prognosticate like God can because he knows all things in advance. It's impossible for me to grasp it. So, if you try to explain it, you might lose your mind. But if you try to explain it away, you might lose your soul. So I accept it. I see that these are two great truths that interlock. They are truths held in tension, like a great suspension bridge. Suspension bridge, uh, bridges are held up by tensions that pull against each other. Because they pull firmly enough, 
the right balance, they support the weight, and they last. One thing is clear. You have a responsibility. You have a responsibility. Those who will go into eternal destruction are those who fit themselves for it. They prepare themselves for it. Maybe you're working really hard right now to prepare yourself for destruction. I mean, you're just, you're a good sinner. You work hard at it. You've refined it to an art. You have refined the rejection of God's will and purpose in your life to a fine art. It's not God's fault. It's your own doing. The scripture makes it clear that Whoever will come to Jesus Christ will never be cast out. So if you want to come to Jesus Christ tonight, you'll be saved. Whosoever will, let him come, the scripture says. Will you come is the issue. Now verse 1 of chapter 10, Paul again unveils the depth of his heart. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Do you remember that Paul was called the apostle to the Gentiles? He was a Jewish rabbi, and this is, this is interesting, a Jewish rabbi who was perfectly cut out to preach the gospel to the Jews, but that became Peter's line of work. Paul went out to non-Jewish people, Gentile people around the Roman world, and became known as the apostle to the Gentiles, but always in his heart was that aching for his own people. My prayer to God, my great desire, is that Israel might be saved. Every time I go to Israel, I spend some time at the Western Wall. Now, you probably heard it called the Wailing Wall. They don't call it that anymore. They feel they're not wailing. They feel they're rejoicing. And so, the Western Wall, the holiest site to the Jews nearest the temple area, and people, Jewish people, go up and they say their prayers there. And I've gone up many times and I've prayed like this for that nation. Lord, my desire and my prayer for this nation is that they might be saved. And a lot of times, if I get there in the evening in Jerusalem, I sometimes like to sneak out after supper and take a long walk from the hotel around the walls of the old city, or at least through the Jaffa Gate, then out the Dung Gate, then down the Kidron Valley, over by the East Gate, and across to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's dark. And I look up at the city, sometimes lit up at night, and I think back to its history. I think back to Jesus standing just a few feet higher in elevation on the Mount of Olives, which is right behind me, weeping over that city as he foresaw the Roman destruction. And I pray for them. I know what's coming in their future. It's not pretty. In my fervent prayer, even though, listen, I, I'm as Gentile as they come. And yet I lived with them. I lived in Israel for a period of time, and I can relate to them because I've observed how they think. And I ache for them because they've missed the boat so much. They've strayed so far from God's plan for them. They've rejected their Messiah. And it's interesting, Israel, it really is, because it's a land ridden with religion. You go to Jerusalem, and you know, it's the city where nobody gets along, and yet it's the most religious city on earth. It's the home of Judaism and one of the homes of Islam and Christianity. Israel is the birthplace of other religious sects, cults. It is so religious 
And yet they've broken up in little clubs, fighting one another, sometimes to the point of bloodshed. So Paul says, even back then, and let me retranslate it into more of the original language, I have a consuming desire in my heart for which I beg that Israel might be saved. You know, it's one thing to have a desire. It's another thing to let that desire sprout wings enough to pray. How many times do we look around and we have a desire? We notice things in our society. We notice the bias of the media. We notice a nation turning from God. We talk about abortion and prayer in schools and the homosexual agenda. When is the last time that we prayed, we talked to God about those issues? That we were moved in our spirits enough to not only just have a desire, but to let the desire be taken into prayer. Nehemiah is a great example, like Paul the Apostle. Far away from Jerusalem. A couple of representatives come from Jerusalem to where he's at. And Nehemiah goes, hey, tell me what's going on back home in Jerusalem. How's the work going? How's the temple and the city? Is it being rebuilt? And they go, oh, no, it's, it's tough. The walls are burned with fires. The gates are broken down. People are discouraged. Nehemiah could have said, oh, tough. Too bad. I'm really sorry to hear that. I'm busy now. He says that he fell on his knees and he started weeping and praying before the God of heaven. It so touched his heart. And when I read things like Romans 10, I say, Oh God, touch my heart to the extent that so much of my time is busy talking to you about these issues. That's where the power is. The power isn't in picketing. The power isn't in campaigning. The power isn't in arguing. The power is in prayer. my heart's desire, and my fervent prayer. Now the Bible says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Avails much. And so we say America needs a revival. Well, you know what? You have not because you ask not. What if the church asked for it all the time? But we'd see it. I'm looking ahead, and I'm looking ahead with great hope. For revival. For our nation. Our nation has wandered from God. Our nation has gone pretty well astray. And everybody's worried. What if there's a war? What if there's a Y2K problem? Well, you know what? If what I have observed in the past every time there's a national crisis happens when there's another national crisis, so be it. Last time there was a war, churches were filled wanting to know about God and is there a reality to eternity? Hey, if it's going to wake people up, there's a great economic crash. If it's going to wake people up spiritually, I mean, who are we to think, well, we're an American Christian. I mean, we're immune to problems. Maybe we need a few. Maybe it would do us a heap of good. Maybe it would put us on our knees to pray for our nation. There's a great story I heard about a church in New York City they got a new organ. It was a renovated church. It was an old place that they fixed up. and It, it was the first day when that organ was going to be played after the sanctuary had been renovated and the organ had been bought, new pipes put in. I mean, it was going to sound classic. The auditorium was filled with people all from New York City. and The organist sat at the bench to play the piano and pushed some notes down, and nothing happened. 
pulled, stops out, played it, nothing happened. The custodian in the auditorium sensed that the electricity was probably not on in that part of the building, so he scrambled, went over to the organ, and found out it wasn't plugged in. And so he wanted to, to write a little note in haste to the organist to let him know that after the invocation was said by the preacher, that he would plug it in. And so he scribbled on the note, after the prayer, the power will come. <laughs> it's true, isn't it? We want power. We want change. After the prayer, the power will come. A lot of us run our lives like toasters or refrigerators. We're all equipped, but we're not plugged in. We're standing with a cord. <laughs> I'm an appliance, man. I'm gifted. Oh, plug in through prayer to God's power source. Be an agent of change. Have a desire coupled with prayer and the fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous person avails much. For, Paul says, verse 2, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. Now only Paul could really say, I bear them witness. Because he was there once. He was Jewish. He was a rabbi. He was a persecutor. He left Jerusalem with papers, permission from the Sanhedrin to find Christians in all parts of the empire and play, pin the spear on the Christian to put him to death. And so he sought to get them as far as Damascus when God stopped him. So he can say, I, I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God. Some of the most zealous people I've ever met are the Orthodox Jews. I mean, they are, they are so zealous. If you were um, in, in Jerusalem this week, and it was Shabbat, it was Sabbath, it was Friday night or Saturday, and you wanted to drive a car through the ultra-Orthodox section called Me'asherim, I would almost bet uh, nine to one that your car would get stoned. You come back with broken windows, and you probably yourself would get stoned. They'll stone you if you, on the Sabbath, drive through their neighborhood. If a girl dresses immodestly, and you women may have to look at how they define that. Your shoulders are to be covered. You, your body is to be covered. You're to be modest. If you walk through their neighborhood immodest, you'll probably get stoned. If not, you'll get reprimanded. You'll get yelled at, and you'll get kicked out. They are zealous course, he says, I bear them witness they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. They have an incorrect understanding of their own law, the Torah. Zeal is a wonderful thing, but you know what? Zeal without knowledge is dangerous, devastating. How many people follow their cause with great zeal? But it's not according to truth. And I've gone to airports and I've seen Hare Krishnas parading and giving out literature and trying to convince people of their cause. And other cultists like Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses knock on doors, give out literature, peddle their way through life. <laughs> and listen, no matter what you think about them, and no matter how wrong they are, they have a zeal. Now, just as zeal without knowledge is dangerous, how about knowledge without zeal? I mean, if we know the truth and we know the answers and we're not telling people, isn't that just as bad? But you can have a zeal that's not according to knowledge. 
I experienced that one time very personally, that people really didn't care about knowledge as much as they did zeal. By the way, I find that in many Christian churches. It's not truth, Bible, doctrine. It's just that you go, hallelujah, a lot. And if you do that, it's okay. But if you speak about Bible and doctrine and you're not filled with the Spirit, it's absolutely appalling. But I find that also in the world. I went to a transcendental meditation meeting one time several years ago in this town, sponsored by a local bank that as soon as I found out, I promised that I would tell people never to bank there. And so I went to the bank that night, and um, they were talking about transcendental meditation, and you have to pay several hundred dollars, of course, but, oh, your life will be peaceful, and it'll be wonderful, and, and um, no matter who you are, your life will be heightened, and you'll be fulfilled by meditating and, on your mantra and saying these words. And then the, the people who, who sounded very intellectual, they came across as just, you know, very erudite and s smart and such, and, and uh, it was a very appealing presentation, said this, even if you are a religious person, you can be a Christian and you can meditate. You can be a Muslim, you can be a Jew. It doesn't matter. This has nothing to do with any religious affiliation. Well, I came that night a little bit prepared. I knew where I was going to, and I knew that they have an initiatory prayer called the puja that they read from. It's, it's written in Hindi Sanskrit, Hindi language, and they are to recite it in, in that Sanskrit. And uh, so nobody knows what it says. So I said, uh, excuse me, I have a question. They said, yes, you, tall one in the back. So I stood up and I said, um, you did say to these fine people that this has nothing to do with any religious overtone whatsoever, that it's uh, purely scientific and it's proven to be uh, satisfying to one's health and emotional, blah, blah, blah. Yes, that's very correct. You've got it. That's right. I said, well, you know, I just happened to bring with me a translation of your initiatory rite translated from the Sanskrit into English. And uh, would you mind if I would read it to these fine people? And I didn't give them a chance to say no. I just started reading it out loud. And I think people were a little bit astonished that it said, I bow down to you, this God and that God and this guru and that guru. And it's, it's a whole list of worship incantations to different deities. Then I held it up and I said, now, it, in, in the light of this, are you going to tell these people again, this has nothing to do with any religious, spiritual overtones at all? I mean, you're asking them to spend several hundred dollars, but you're not telling them the truth. Don't you think you owe it to them to at least tell them the whole truth? Now, I was ready for the people heading up the meeting to be very defensive and come at me and say, I'm ready. Got the guns ready. Come on. I'm going to defend the Christian faith here. And it never happened. They said a few things, but as we were talking back and forth, the people who were sitting around me, especially in front of me, since I was the tall one in the back, the people who were sitting in front of me, uh, who were willing to pay $600, $700 that night, turned around to me and looked at me and said, would you shut up? And a light went on. I thought, that is amazing. Here's a whole group of people willing to be deceived, willing to not know what it says in truth, willing to pay whatever it takes and do whatever it takes to get some kind of purpose and meaning in life, even if they're being deceived. It's like they're saying, 
Shut up. Go ahead. Deceive me. Please deceive me. Please. I'll pay anything to do it. They didn't want to know the truth. They had such a zeal and they abhorred the knowledge. And they admired those that had zeal without knowledge. Let it be said, a combination of both are good. Zeal based upon godly knowledge, based upon the truth. Listen, if you know the answer to get a person to heaven, and if this is the truth, if you believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, don't you think you ought to be excited about that? Isn't that worth some zeal based upon that knowledge? But just zeal for the sake of zeal is like a forest fire. It just burns people. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. A couple things to notice. I think we're going to have to close probably with that verse. First of all, being ignorant. Now, notice in verse 2, he talks about zeal without knowledge. And now in verse 2, this group of people, the Jewish people, being ignorant of God's righteousness. One of the basic mistakes people make is spiritual ignorance and the willingness to do so. Jesus said to the Jewish leaders, You do err not knowing the Scriptures nor the power of God. And you know what? You and I err not knowing the Scriptures or the power of God. What's the source of all error? Not knowing truth. Not knowing the Scriptures or the power of God. Now, here's the clencher. We can know it. You've got a Bible. You own one. You can read it. You can read it with friends. You can read it in kinship groups. You can come to church. There are radio stations that have gospel teaching. Be careful, because not all of them are that great. And there's Christian television. Be even more careful with that. There's good Christian bookstores and literature that explain the context of the Bible. We have so much that there's really no excuse for us to be ignorant. So rather than living in perpetual denial, I guess, and saying things like, well, I don't know the Bible all that well, because my answer is going to be to you, why not? Uh, you don't have to be a spiritual giant in two months, but, you know, after a while, we've got to get it under our belt. We've got to quit ple pleading ignorant because it's available to us. Being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness. Now, let me just tell you another story about something in my life. I was a Christian, maybe two months old, and I didn't know much of the Bible, but I knew a lot more of the Bible after two months of being born again than I did in all of my years going to the church I grew up in. And I was excited about reading it. And I'd read it and I'd memorize it and I'd share it. And on one particular occasion, the church that I grew up in heard that uh, young Skip Heitzig came back from the San Francisco Bay Area a little bit different than when he left. And there's a whole bunch of other young people that are excited about the Bible and God and Jesus. And it, it did create a stir in my local church. Because I went back to my local church the first Sunday with my Bible. I walked in with it. I'd never done that before. You never brought Bibles to the church I grew up in. So I walked in with the Bible, and the usher looked at it and said, what are you doing with that? <laughs> but I brought it nonetheless, and I tried to find, you know, passages, you know, during the service and see how they connect. And I was just 
I had zeal. I hoped it was based on knowledge. They were having what they called a synod meeting with the bigwigs. They asked if I'd come as part of the meeting, not, not the whole meeting, but just come and share my experience. And I did. I started sharing my experience, and they said, well, what do you think, um, uh, Skip, uh, that our church needs? I mean, you know, you, you haven't found it here, but you found it somewhere, and you're really excited, and I guess this is a good sign, but what do we need? And I'm thinking, okay, you know, Lord, you've given me this opportunity. They asked. <laughs> Give me your love, but I'm going to tell them what, what they need. So I talked about a personal relationship with Christ, and it's not based on ritual or ceremony, but you have to really know. I and mean, I quoted the Bible. And one of the leaders in the church is fidgeting, just very angry, like this. And she turned to me, and she interrupted me, and she said, You keep quoting the Bible, the Bible. We don't know the Bible like you know the Bible. I mean, you're telling us stuff that, you know, we have no reference for. I mean, it was a self-indictment. I said, well, you know, with all due respect, I think that's part of the problem here. Is we're talking about worshiping Christ, God, is revealed in the Bible. The more you know the Bible, you're going to know principles about God. You're going to know Him. You can know Him personally through it. So I'd suggest that you, you know, Read the Bible. <laughs> so that's why our services are filled with Bible reading. Because you can't lose with that. Peter said we have, through his word, through his promises, everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted to the righteousness of God. I'd love to finish that verse, but that's next week. Could be tonight that you've been ignorant of God's righteousness. You say, well, what is God's righteousness? The righteousness God requires is the righteousness that God delivers. He gives it. God doesn't require your perfection. He didn't say, I want you to be perfect. Go on long pilgrimages. Spend long hours of the night proving to me that you're worthy. Because if you did that, you'd find out in the end you're not. So the righteousness God requires is the righteousness God will freely give to those who admit, I cannot attain it on my own. I must surrender to the righteousness that he gives freely, undeservedly, by his grace. And you know when you do that, you're going to rest. Because I have a hunch that some of you have been ignorant of God's righteousness and you've tried to attain something on your own, and you've had good days and bad days. There's days you read the Bible, you'll even say, God, look at I read 10 chapters of Leviticus, and we know how boring that is, but I've done it. I deserve something. And we're still trying to work our way into God's favor. And your greatest day 
is when you realize you cannot earn that favor. You can't earn it. But you can have it if you receive it freely by faith. Some of you have difficulty with that. Well, that sounds too easy. I bet people thought that when Jesus turned to the thief on the cross who had sinned all of his life, in the last moment he said, hey, today you'll be with me in paradise. What? You're going to let that guy in heaven like that? Yeah. Why? Well, he believes in me. Well, at least say, uh, you'll be with me in paradise after you get baptized and show a long history of goodness and uh, join our church. No, just, you have faith? You, you trust in me? You trust that you, are, you believe you are a sinner? You believe you are alienated from God? You trust that I am the solution to your problem? All of that, by the way, is implicit in the answer of the thief to Jesus. I think we'll touch on that next week, but I don't want to go too far tonight. Will you submit yourself to God's righteousness? To do that, you have to humble yourself and say, I'm a sinner. You say, well, I'm, I'm religious. Okay, you're a religious sinner. So you're still a sinner. But I'm moral. You're a religious moral sinner. And you may be a very moral, wonderful person and be one of the great stalwart examples to this community, but you're still alienated from God if you're not trusting Christ for your salvation. You need to know that. You also need to know you can be freely forgiven if you trust in Jesus Christ only and place your faith in him only. If you place it in Christ plus my works or I'll trust my church or my... No, him only. 